I'm so excited to share our next guest with you, Jason Earle, the founder of 1-800-GOT-MOLD. He's a former Wall Street trader turned founder CEO of 1-800-GOT-MOLD. We had talked about many different topics and how he leveraged different opportunities to turn that into the business that he runs today. He had talked about how he overcame serious personal issues, including his mom's suicide, his own Lyme disease, to galvanize his purpose, his capabilities to be this mission-driven entrepreneur that he is today. We had talked about mental models that he used as a way to choose the problem he wants to solve. We had talked about how he, where he is uniquely qualified to make the kind of impact that he wants to make. We also had talked about the life of being a seeker and how being a seeker is very helpful for him to hone his edge as a mission-driven entrepreneur. We also had talked about the different books that he's encountered that really change his perspective in life, in business, in relationships. Lastly, he also talked about his daily rituals, such that he's ready to go every morning and face his next challenge. So for those of you interested in leveling up your game as a mission-driven entrepreneur, this is an interview you don't want to miss. Noble Warrior, I'm really excited to have my new friend, Jason Earl, to be with us today. He's the CEO of GotMall.com and got a fascinating story, an open book, another Noble Warrior who's willing to share his journey, his, uh, his tactics, his mindset with all of you, all of us here. So welcome to the show, Jason. Thank you Thank so you. much for being here. Thank you for having me. So you actually had a really fascinating story. Why don't we actually go there first? Why did you start GotMold.com versus anything else that you could be doing in the world? Ah, let's just jump right in. Now, that's just great. I, um, I, I'm in the mold business um, by virtue of personal experience uh, that, uh, you know, it's one of those things that you, you would never really think the mold industry has appeal, right? People, people don't think of that as something that's got a lot of, I mean, I don't, I don't think there's even a, 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 a curriculum that would get you properly trained for, for what we do. I'm in the healthy home business really more, more broadly, but I would say more accurately. Um, and so within that healthy home space, I am the founder of a company called 1-800-GOT-MOLD, which is a mold inspection company that does not do remediation. So we do diagnostics inspection, basically sick building investigations where people believe that their house or their workplace is, is affecting their health adversely. And we go in and do the detective work, figure out what's going on, and then bring in whatever resources in terms of contractors, not on a subcontractor basis, but we select and vet contractors who will come in and follow our scope of work, remediate the building. Then we do the testing at the end, do all the verification and make sure it's been done properly before the final funds are released. And so in essence, what we do is we we, we guide them through the entire process at, so that they don't have to, to experience a learning curve of dealing with a mold problem. Um, and so I've been in that business now for about 17 years, which is crazy. And that, that came after a, a career on Wall Street. I was a stockbroker for nine years. Um, and we can talk about that too, that we can kind of, we can start in the present and we'll go back to the past and we'll weave it all together. But, uh, but the mold business came in, it was sort of one of these things that in retrospect, it makes complete sense, but I never would have predicted this in a million years. If you told me 20 years ago that I'd be, you know, in the mold business with the CEO and founder of 1-800-GOT-MOLD, um, I would have laughed you out of the room. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. But now because of what we'll talk about today, uh, it makes, makes nothing but sense. Um, so I actually, after leaving Wall Street, I was uh, 
uh, I was looking for something meaningful to do with my life. I had had a really nice career in, in my in my early twenties, and uh, and I wanted to uh, to to do something that would be uh, a contribution to the greater good. It, on on Wall Street, there was none of that. The people who benefited the most were the people who owned the stores where I shopped. That was it, right? Uh, I was a money changer for all intents and purposes. If things went well, I made rich guys richer. If I made if things didn't go well, then I was you know causing harm. So it, it was really kind of one of those things where it it, it rang very hollow for me. Um, and my mom's voice always echoed in the back of my mind because when I was a kid, she had me volunteer at the local hospital where she was an administrator. And uh, it was mostly because she didn't want me to stay home during the summer times, I think probably due to fear that I would burn the house down. But what she did do was it, in, it indoctrinate me into uh, a, a, a service-based attitude. And so her hospital was a, a, a physical rehab center, uh, occupational and um, uh, it, occupational and whatever the rehabilitation. So it was a lot of amputees and brain trauma. And so my jobs were throughout the hospital, you know, delivering goods to the store, to the, to the, to the floors and, you know, dealing with uh, dietary and all that kind of stuff. So, so I, I got a lot out of, uh, out of contribution. My mom's philosophy was always that if you, if you, if you help improve the quality of other people's lives, the, the, by, the byproduct of that is a great quality of life for yourself, right? So it's almost like the philosophy that if you help enough people get what they want, you'll get what you want. And, and, and so Wall Street didn't push that or didn't scratch that itch for me. Uh, but while I was on Wall Street, I would volunteer, go to various different, you know, I, I volunteered for Operation Smile, did a couple of international missions with them. Uh, and every time I came back from one of those, which are exhausting and, you know, they were time consuming, I felt more and more fulfilled than any vacation uh, where I was, you know, lounging at, at the beach, you know, being waited on hand and foot. And so uh, while I was back, I was I, I left Wall Street right around September 11th. And while I was backpacking around, I ended up in Hawaii and I was spending some time in uh, on the various islands. But while I was in Oahu, I was reading about this mold problem that had been discovered in the uh, Hilton Kalia Tower. So the flagship property for Hilton on Oahu, Waikiki Beach, their main building there was shut down for this for this massive mold problem. And initially they thought it was about a half million dollar problem. Uh, what happened was a maid found it. Um, and you know they began opening up the walls and as as is common with big mold problems, you know, what you find is generally the tip of the iceberg. And as you begin unraveling the building, it's like Pandora's box. And so what was initially a half million dollar problem became a $5 million problem and then a $55 million problem. And so there, there it was big news on this little island, to say the least. And so there were lots of stories in the local papers about people who had been affected by the, the moldy conditions in the, in the hotel. And one particular story jumped out at me. It was a gentleman who had, in his 40s developed adult onset asthma, which I'd never even heard of. And he was also allergic to all sorts of foods and things that he had never been sensitive to before. And it was a deja vu moment for me. It was like a, uh, it, it like jumped out and uh, it, it, it brought me back to my own childhood because when I was four years old, um, I was, uh, uh, I lost about 30% of my body weight in a three week period. And my mom being in the, in, in healthcare was, was, uh, was, was duly concerned. And they brought me to get to, to the doctor and the doctor suggested that I, go to children's hospital and they initially diagnosed me with cystic fibrosis, which was a devastating diagnosis. My father had lost four of his cousins before the age of 14 to that. So it was in our genes and that was probably why it was such a quick diagnosis. Um, but a second round of tests about six weeks later concluded that I didn't have cystic fibrosis evidenced by the fact that I sit here with you, you know, I'm 43 years old. Um, 
but actually what I had was asthma compounded by pneumonia. And I was uh, allergic to every single thing in my environment. They did a, 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 an allergy test on me where they put me in the, this papoose. And, uh, and it's one of my earliest memories, actually. It's a formative memory uh, where they basically put you in a papoose or like a straight jacket with your back exposed. And they have effectively a grid on your back. And they did the skin testing on me. And so they put all the antigens. My dad said I looked at the ladybug. My, like, my back just turned red with spots all over it. So I was allergic to grass, wheat, corn, eggs, dogs, cats, even cotton. And, uh, uh, and so I lived on a then non-working farm uh, surrounded by grass, wheat, corn, eggs, dogs, cats, and, co- and obviously cotton. And so I really lived on inhalers until I was about 12 years old. And uh, my folks split up. And the house was sold and, I, and, and my symptoms disappeared. And I never thought about it, really. I didn't give it much examination. My grandfather had grown out of his asthma. And so I think the family probably assumed as much. And uh, that, that was, it was also true for me. And so, uh, so I, I sailed off into the sunset. So I, I, uh, I'm sitting here in Hawaii and I, 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 it was like a, a, the, the, the light went on. And so I, I called my father from a payphone, which probably isn't there anymore, and said, hey, Dad, do you think we had a mold problem at Old Trenton Road? And he laughed at me. He's like, Jason, of course we had mold. We had mushrooms growing in the basement. Why do you ask? And uh, and it was like I, I just immediately knew that I wanted to pursue this idea of how buildings impact people's health. Mm-hmm. Because absent that exposure, my immune system was no longer on high alert. And these things that it was it was re- it was receiving as as threats were no longer threats. They were part of my normal environment. And so I'm now to this, I'm allergic to nothing. Zero. Zilch, right? So all my friends who are doctors who refer patients to us mm-hmm. um, are, are, you know, it's, it's, it, they're always amazed that I have absolutely no, no allergies whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so anyway, so I read this, 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 this story. I immediately call my father. I get this validation. I, I come back to New Jersey armed with, with curiosity um, and time. I was looking for, for a career change. And I took a job working for, actually answered Ned, uh, working for a, a, a company doing basement waterproofing and mold remediation. Um, and basically just roll up my sleeves and start, you know, from, from the ground up. And I had been a stockbroker, right? So this is a big shift to go from stockbroker to like, you know, contractor sale. But it wasn't long after I, I, uh, wasn't long after I was, uh, working with them that I realized that I had basically jumped out of the frying pan of working with Wall Street guys that were pretty scurrilous, uh, into this contracting world where these guys doing mold remediation were actually doing really bad work. Uh, and they were in many cases causing more harm than 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 uh, than they were good because they were contaminating houses and things like that using chemicals. And so I, I saw an opportunity to create a company that would actually protect the consumer, that would guide them through the process, so to and to insulate them from these players, these these guys. That at the time there was no industry standard. It was like the wild wild west. It, there was there was no regulation or, or anything. And even where it is now in place, uh, those those the, those regulations are are very poorly. Enforced. So anyway, that that's what 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 got me into the mold inspection or assessment business. It was really the idea of of helping people through this process, which I saw as complicated. Even being in the business, seeing seeing how people simply couldn't do it on their own without making incredible mistakes, which have long term consequences to their health and value and saleability and habitability of their homes. Um, and so, at the time, I was dating this woman, and she heard she she was inspired by my my interest in this, and she heard about a guy who trained dogs to sniff out mold in buildings. I tell you all this for a reason, but the it, it was it was it was a it was a crazy uh, it was a crazy idea. But I flew down to Florida and I met this dog trainer, and he introduced me to uh, what who would become my my four legged partner for twelve years. Her name is Oreo, 
And uh, Oreo and I came back armed with, you know, to, together to, to, to go and, and, and sniff out mold in buildings. But really, it was, it was, a, it was a, a true secret weapon because people uh, were so attracted to the idea of using a rescued dog to sniff out hidden mold in buildings. And to guy. so we ended up really getting a lot of, a lot of traction through the press. So pause for a second. I mean, because you, you actually jump the transformation story quite a lot, right? So I want to backtrack for a moment. So you're in Hawaii backpacking, you know, and discover this huge problem that um, that a lot of people experience, the unhealthy home symptoms, right, of having mold. And then you just decided that, oh, wow, this is a quite a transformational mechanism uh, from, from your own childhood. But what I wanted to focus on this is because a lot of times people, entrepreneurs especially, would see a problem and they want to solve for this problem, right? But going from a Wall Street guy who makes tons of money to a contract guy, I mean, that's a pretty big jump from identifying the problem to say, I want to be part of the solution to jumping into becoming a contractor in a mall business right? So that's a huge leap of faith on your part. So if you don't mind going back to the internal state, because yeah, yeah. outside I, of- I, I, tend, I tend to uh, jump, I, I, I did jump over that. That's a very critical part. Um, so the, I think the, uh, the connectedness to my own personal story was really obviously the, the, that was the, the, um, the linchpin for me, what I realized in this space, okay, was that um, this is the problem larger than me. And that no matter how long I work on this, I'll never be able to truly solve it. But I did believe that there was do, being done so poorly that, that any effort that I made in this direction would, would yield tremendous benefit to lots of people, right? And so um, it, became, it became clear to me that uh, we all live in buildings, we all breathe air, right? Uh, when I started looking at the statistics, uh, there are 37 million Americans in, in the United States that suffer from chronic sinusitis, and uh, that's the most prevalent long-term illness in America. According to the Mayo Clinic, 96% of more of those cases are mold-related. Now, most of those 37 million people don't know that, um, and I figured there's a that's a that's a bridge to build, right? So people are aware of that, um, and then also 24 million cases of asthma uh, in America, uh, of which 10 million are children. According to the, and that number is up 100%, by the way, in the last 10 years, the, 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 the childhood asthma, the, the pediatric asthma cases are up 100% in the last 10 years. So the, all, all of the, those statistics continue to, to, uh, to, to come my way as I'm looking at this industry and seeing how badly it's being done and seeing the need for it. And I, and I realized that there, was, there were opportunities in there that were significant, financially speaking. If you could solve enough of those problems, then the rewards would be there. Mm-hmm. But I also got so much gratification in the early inspect in the early days, not only from the people that were helping, but really also the idea that I had no idea what I was doing. It was completely making up it, making it up as I went along. There were no courses to take, so I got really inspired by the the idea of a sort of a rebirth for, for myself. But I kept, but I, I kept thinking about the fact that that the um, the vast majority of people who go through this are really truly um, like, like they, they, they had no idea how much of a, of a fulcrum or how much of a leverage point this particular thing, this mold problem in their life could be. It could either be solved and they would never think about it again, 
or it could be exacerbated and it could literally change the trajectory of their entire lives. And so it became my mission to help people navigate that, knowing the import of the, the outcomes. Um, and the more I did it, the more I realized that any obstacle I had to overcome in order to get there was worth it because the problem and the, and the significance of that opportunity was so big. So was the aha moment literally the, the call with your father to say, holy shit, of course, this was the thing. Was, was that the moment where you, that became your mission? You know, it's a funny, it's a really good question, and I'm glad you're asking that because it, the initial response coming from a guy who was at Wall, Wall Street, I had the, I would say the vast majority of my concern was, is there a business here? Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the nuggets of wisdoms, go to bit.ly forward slash Noble Warrior Review and leave us a five-star review and tell us what you're getting out of this podcast. This will really help us attract other people like you and share these nuggets of wisdoms to others just like you. Okay, do that right now. Bitly forward slash Noble Warrior Review. Thanks a lot. Am I going to be able? What can I charge? Is there a large enough total? Is there a large enough total addressable market there? You know, is there a competitive? You look. What's the competitive landscape look like? You know, I looked at it from the perspective of of a business person. But the more I got into it, the more I realized that the mission, which I which I put front and center in the beginning, uh, the mission became a larger part of it. And as that mission, as it, as it actually did truly consume more of my my thoughts, uh, I would say it was more of a gradual process where I realized that this could be my mission. But I didn't realize until I actually really ran into some hard times and was willing to continue through those hard times that it was my mission. That's actually probably when it, it was probably at my darkest hour. There was a point where we almost went out of business, actually several times. And it was during those darkest hours where I had to make a decision. And that's what galvanized that. So that's a great question. Was, and, and, and I never really thought about whether there was a moment. Um, I saw that it could be. And then I, and then I made a decision that it was. Yeah. I, and by the way, the context of this question is because a lot of people listening to this are in the transition career-wise, business-wise, whatever it may be, and they're grappling with that themselves, right? And is it like an inside out, like, hey, this is my mission, no matter what, I'm going to make it happen, damn it, right? I want to solve this big problem for my younger self, let's say, or an outside-in approach, be like, hey, huge business, let me just keep cracking at it, keep cracking at it, and uh, and I asked that more specifically during the dark times as uh, as you said, because we, as entrepreneurs, we go out and do certain things. We have a vision, but the but the realization of this vision from the moment you conceive this idea to the actual feedback loop isn't always there. Isn't like, oh, boom! I have an idea. Millions of dollars comes in. Positive feedback. It's not like that. It's no, that's a liability if that happens sometimes, right? Right. Exactly. Right. You don't discover anything. Yeah. infrastructure, whatever. Right. <clears throat> so, but that's what they want. So, so what I wanted to dive a little deeper is how did you find that courage to keep moving forward in spite of the lack of immediate feedback business-wise um, support from family or friends or girlfriends, whatever, or that internal faith in yourself that you, my friend, Jason, are the guy to actually make this happen because in the dark times, what naturally comes is, hmm, maybe I'm not the guy. 
maybe what I thought was the total addressable market um, just isn't there. Maybe the strategy I'm going about it isn't blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of like samsara, the spiritual world, people call it, right? Samsara, this, this yeah, fear yeah. that comes in. So I'm curious to know, in during those dark times, how did you actually navigate that space such that you, you continue to move forward, continue to you know, believe in yourself, your capability, your strategy, your eye, your vision to keep address this addressable market? So I think there's a there's a couple things that, that come to mind right away. First of all, I started talking about the dogs because that, that was a it, it, there's a there's a, a major. I think that's why I was driving towards that that part of the story um, because a lot of it had to do with with uh, burning the the ships, making a complete and total immersive commitment that was uh, that you couldn't really turn back from. But mm-hmm. but that but but the preceding component that I think is really important is that I had been given the gift of adversity at a young age, mm-hmm. and so I I I, I have mined those experiences as a child um, and as even as a young adult to find um, to find comfort in discomfort and to, to realize that the only true that the only true lessons I've ever learned came from came from what people would call negative experiences. I don't call them negative experiences, bad experiences, painful maybe at the time, but you know, what we call negative or bad is, is generally speaking a very a premature judgment. Uh, at the very least, because the things that I would say are the most negative or m- the worst experience of my life by external um, uh, judgment prop are the absolute most powerful, important experiences. So, so as a, as a kid, um, you know, I grew up in a really kind of, uh, I'll sort of give you the preamble on this, but you know, I, I had a really uh, rocky childhood. My parents were, were uh, uh, tumultuous, alcoholic, uh, all that good stuff, you know, sort of the textbook, um, I'm sure a lot of our entrepreneur brethren are connecting on that, but it, you know, we grew up in a, in a, in a, and I was an only child with several siblings, but all half siblings. So my, my mom had been previously married. I had an older, I had an older sister through that marriage. My dad had been previously married. Um, he subsequently gotten um, remarried and had other children as well. So, uh, but the, uh, uh, when they, when that, that was that I, I was, I was an entrepreneur early on. And I had to make money because my parents didn't have any. I had to make money to get what I wanted. So they, they always said that. So I had various different businesses as a child <clears throat> all over the place. I always had more money in my pocket than my parents did. That's for sure. Um, whether it was going to the golf course and, and finding the golf balls and around the perimeter of the water holes and then washing them off and then selling them back to the golfers. Or, you know, we were selling sodas and water to the, to the, to the construction workers in our, in our booming um, veteran community, New York City veteran community, who would just buy them for 10 cents at, the, at, at what was, I guess, the Costco at the time. And we sell them to the construction workers for a dollar, you know, in our little red wagon. So th- I always had that sort of, that was always my inclination. But then um, my mom uh, committed suicide when I was 14 years old. And uh, she had, she had been making several. She she had been driving in that direction for for a long time. So it was really not a surprise um, at the time. And uh, and then I got Lyme disease, or I was diagnosed with Lyme disease about a year later. And then uh, so it was a very difficult time. Um, and and around that time, I was I was experimenting with psychedelics heavily. Um, I think partially for escape escapist reasons, but also because I had found just a tremendous amount of uh, insight from, from them at the time when I had been experiencing all this, this, uh, really sort of, um, existential, uh, loss really, you know, the loss of my mother and then, you know, dealing with the, the Lyme disease really took a lot out of me. It was 30 pills. It was very, it was before it was in the early nineties. So there wasn't a, a, a standard protocol. There was not a lot of research. And so I was on 30 pills a day of antibiotics for three days 
three days on, three days off, and I was sick and vomiting for three days, and I'd sleep for three days. So they they basically forced me to drop out of high school. Um, and um, and it's through that actually. Um, so I'll tell you. So so I think they called me in from from uh, from class. And they, they, they notified me that I violated their attendance policy. And I had a good relationship with all the teachers. Um, they, they knew that I was going through a lot of stuff. And I got A's on all my tests, but I never did any of the homework. So they, I got C's and D's and F's because I just didn't, I would sleep in class. I was a terrible, terrible, terrible student. Um, I didn't want to be there. They didn't want me there. So they brought me into, into the, into the uh, principal's office and said, you know, you violated attendance policy. And, you know, this is, you know, th- th- this is, it's not working here. Um, so we've decided that you're going to have to repeat your junior year. And I, I was in my junior year. They said, so you have to stay and then, um, and repeat it again. So I said, well, you want me to stay for the rest of the year and then, and then, and then come back and do this again. It doesn't make much sense to me. So, um, basically we resolved that I was going to, I was going to drop out. So I went to the, again, another payphone, called my father from a payphone and, uh, and told him that I wanted to drop out of high school and that I wanted to get my GED and start college a year early. I wanted to leapfrog. And so my dad's a little bit of a rebel. And so he signed me out of school that day. And I, and I was working in the gas station uh, where I had previously been part-time and I got, I, I got full-time hours. And the guy came in with a flat tire in his BMW and he, um, uh, he asked me to fill his tire with air. And I did. Um, but you know, actually he asked me to fill his tire with air. And I said, uh, I said, I can fill it with air, but it'll be flat again before you know, I said, if you give me a few minutes, I can fix it for you. He said, if you can do it fast, there's money in it for you. And I said, all right, fine. So we rolled over to the pump and you could see the nail sticking out. So I took the nail out, I plugged it, filled it with air. And I said, $5. And he put some money in my hand, drove away. And when I looked at my hand, it was a $50 bill. So, and I, and I, and I, in my, in my youthful, I was 16 years old. I, I, it was all the money. I never got a $50 tip, you know? So I thought it was a mistake. So I put the $50 bill in my pocket and I waited for him to come back. I thought for sure he was going to come back and say, sorry, kid, you know, that was a, and, and he didn't. But two weeks later, I saw him again, and I walked up to him, and I said, hey, mister, I don't know if you realize, I don't know if you remember me, um, you know, I'm the kid who fixed your tire. And he's like, yeah, Jason, right? And he remembered my name. So it was the first big lesson in, like, you know, how to win friends and influence people. And, uh, and I said, yeah, 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 I can't believe you remember my name. But I said, I don't know if you realize it, but, you know, you give me a $50 bill for a $5 repair, you know? And he goes, I didn't have 100 And I was like, you know, mind blown. So I just was such a, such a naive, you know, kid in the, in the, in the boonies. And so uh, I said, I feel like if anything that I owe you a favor or something, he's like, kid, you don't get it. Like if anything, I, I owe you a favor. And I said, well, what do you do for a living? He said, I work on wall street. And I said, how about get me a job? And he goes, you only get in life with you ask for. So write down my number and call me by 9am tomorrow. Don't ever bother calling me at all. And I was like, all right, where's the pen? And I grabbed the, I just found a pen and I didn't have a piece of paper. So I started writing his number down in my hand and he started laughing he, and he rolls up his sleeve and he had stock quotes written all over his arm. All over his <laughs> and he goes, kid, you're going to fit right in. And so, uh, so I was like, all right, mister, I'll, I'll call you tomorrow. He's like, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. And he drove off. So I went home and told my father, I, I said, you know, I, you wouldn't believe what just happened. I met this guy. And, you know, I think most parents would be pretty skeptical and they would probably caution their kid against getting their expectations up and probably be concerned, you know, like, is he a normal guy? You know, what's he asking this kid, 16 year old, you know, gas jockey uh, for, you know, his son it could have been perceived as, as strange, but I, I, I called him at 859 because I was concerned. I wasn't sure how hard that nine o'clock was. So I dialed the phone at 859 and he said, Hey, you called. And I said, of course I did. And he goes, what are you doing today? And I said, I'm going to work. He goes, where? I said, the gas station. He says, uh, wrong answer. And I was like, can we do that again? He said, yeah. And I said, he goes, what are you doing today? And I said, going to work. He said, where? And I said, what's your address? 
He said, 88 Pine Street, 10th floor. And it hangs up. And I was like, what am I going to do? So I put on my finest pair of jeans for my Wall Street interview. I didn't have a suit. I'm 16 years old. You know, I was literally planning to go to work uh, at the gas station. So I called out of work and I put on my finest pair of jeans and I borrowed some penny loafers from my dad. And I put on a, a, a button down shirt and a sweater over it and I flipped on my left Wall Street. And, and, and the guy was the managing director of, of a broker term. That's a whole nother story. But he ended up recruiting me and training me and, and took me under his wing. And, and I unknowingly at the time, about a year later, I had my license. I, w- I became the youngest licensed stockbroker in history with a Guinness World Record. To, uh, to, 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 uh, wait, wait, you were in the Guinness World Record? I have a Guinness World Record for being the youngest licensed stockbroker in history. Yeah. How cool is that? Wow. Yeah. Well, that and $1.50 fifty will buy about a half a slice of pizza in New York City these days. But that was it was a, it was a time and a place, and it was a, it was a, and it was a wild time. It was the early '90s, so it was, and I was a stockbroker from 1994 until uh, until 2001. And so I had a nice career. I, st- I started uh, a month before, the, a month after, rather, the first World Trade Center bombing, and I quit a month before September 11th. Wow. Um, so bookends. You know, it was, wow. Um, and so, but the, 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 this all circles back to the question about- By the way, I just want to underline this, uh, listeners. <clears throat> opportunity is when preparation, sorry, luck is, is preparation meets opportunity. And the fact that, you didn't just, well, you, you, not only you showed up in your life, but also you took action. You're ready to actually pounce on this and say, Hey, I'm going to be working for you. Let me figure out how to do it. So this is a beautiful illustration of that. What was also funny was the first thing was that there were a lot of lessons in there. He remembered my name. So I, I, I try to make a point of remembering people's names, even the people who fix my tires, mm-hmm. right? It's just a conscientiousness. It doesn't, these are, you know, there, there is no, there's no person you should remember a person that doesn't matter. Right. Um, so I, I, I'm terrible at it, but it's something I strive to do. Um, and I, and the other thing was that showing up and in fact, he said, you know, you showed up and I said, yeah, I, I can't believe, you know, I don't know why you're so surprised about that. And he said, 90% of success in life is showing up kid. And I didn't realize he was quoting Woody Allen at the time, but it's true too. Right. I mean, like if you just show up that 99% of the problems you have out there with people is that they don't show up emotionally, physically, or otherwise they don't show up. Right. If everyone just showed up, we could we could get a lot more stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then he he took me under his wing and he and he really did. He put me through um, the ringer. Uh, it was a hellish training, and he didn't do it intentionally. He 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 did it intentionally. He made it difficult, and he knew that it was going to be difficult. But he 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 made it more difficult. I just had brunch with him two weeks ago. He's my one of my closest friends. You know, he's awesome. Like, That's awesome. And, and Randy, he's just like my heart. Right, you guys are the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, he gave me my first book, Think and Grow Rich. He gave me my first self-help book I, uh, while I was working for him within a few weeks. Right down the street, there was a Rand McNally store that had an audiobook section. And I bought, I loaded up with the little bit of money I had. I was getting paid $200 a week. And um, I buy audiobooks. Zig Ziglar, See You at the Top, my first one. I was listening to cassette tapes in my desk while I was, you know, making phone calls. But I had to make 400 phone calls a day. I was getting paid $200 a week. Uh, eventually, I moved into his apartment. I was paying him six hundred a month for rent, so I had two hundred dollars left for myself. I had about three dollar a day budget, so I lived on hot dogs and knishes and whatever else. I had holes in the bottom of my shoes. It was like a ratio outer story, but it was real, and I lived it, you know. But uh, it was and it was hard work. I would work. I would get in there at six o'clock in the morning. I work until ten o'clock at night. And I'd, you know, if you made four hundred phone calls a day to become a successful stockbroker, you had to make four hundred calls a day. And if one guy said yes to you, you were going to make a million dollars out of here. If you could do that every day. That means 99.75% failure rate is the key to success in that business. Mm. Yeah, the 399 phone calls out of the 400 will be failures. Mm. And that one is all you needed. And so when I look at the, 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 
the obstacles in my path now, I think I'm guaranteed, I'm not going to fail 99.75% of the time in my current occupation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this is a training ground. So for that reason, I think a lot of times having, uh, having um, early adversity is your greatest gift. People unfortunately don't necessarily reorder that or reframe it early enough in their life to recognize that that's where the gold is, Mm. you know? They think that they should have been like the, the, the silver spoon kid who has it easy, who doesn't have to work so hard, right? I, I'm really excited about the fact that I was I was the hand-me-down kid, you know? My parents had no money. I had to go figure out how to do those things on my own. The greatest gift I had was not being like my my, my um, wealthy friends, you know, um, because I had no choice but to to figure out uh, what that path would look like on my own. Right. So, so let me actually underline something real quick, because a lot of people, especially cerebral folks, overachievers, they would look at the self-help industry, quote unquote, right? These books, Think and Grow Rich, you know, Meet You at the Top, Zig Ziglar, Tony Robbins, as, you know, like woo-woo, whatever stuff, right? I, as, as, as you can imagine, again, this is, I'm hosting this Noble Warrior podcast, is all about that, because in my mind, is if we can figure out how to use the internal resources that we have, our mind, our body, our spirit, our emotions, our heart, um, to the extent where we actually align ourselves to what we're here to do, then we can have a life of more meaning and more purpose in our life. So I'm curious to know from your point of view, because you received that soup, that gift super young, 15. I wish I had received that gift in a very cultivated way at 15. So for those people who are like, I don't know about Tony Robbins or NLP, plant medicine, psychedelics, all these things, what would you say to them? I, I would say that if you're willing to look at the world honestly, and if you can suspend uh, disbelief and simply look at objective reality, which is a really hard thing to do. I mean, it's a hard thing to do on an ongoing basis. But if you can look at the, this is evidence-based stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, I, you know, it's proven that you can, you can, you can drive yourself into a tizzy. If you want to, if you want to destroy your life, that's a pretty easy path. You know how to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that there, that's a well, and, and the same thing goes with, with success. I think, you know, you, you start to realize that all of these teachers all are teaching something similar. They may call these things differently, but there's a common thread. And you can say that with the great religions, the common, the common thread on all those things are what I'm interested in. I don't care about the labels or the, or, the, or, or even what you call your path or whatever. You, the, the, the commonality, the, the common do- denominator there, um, is, is, is consistent. And um, it, it comes down to um, being willing to, um, to willingness, I think, is the first step, right? Um, and, and willingness gives you open-mindedness. And, and, and I think that those are the most important steps when you're starting to make a transformation in your life. Yeah. Um, because it's the preconceived notions, it's the ego, it's all these, these resistances, it's the voices in your head that have gotten you to where you are that will keep you where you are, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so... So it, it, I really do think it comes down to open. Now, a lot of people find their way bumping it. They just bump into stuff eventually and they realize that's not working. Um, but I, I do think it comes down to just plain and simple willingness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then to be willing to, to look at the world honestly, because the teachers are out there. You know, we live in the most amazing time of the world because you don't have to go down the street to the Rand McNally store like I did and buy an audio book with money you don't have. It's available online for free. Uh, you know, the podcast. Oh my God, I would have, I mean, I was like, 
that doesn't get dream come true. I mean, just the, it, it's just amazing. So, so anybody that's a seeker, being a seeker is what would be my, my number one recommendation, you know, mm-hmm. but I don't know that you can give anybody that wisdom can't be, it, wisdom has to be discovered. Um, you, it can be, it can be offered, but it can't be transferred. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so I don't, I don't know if I think that when the, you know, they say when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And I think that when you're, when you, when it comes down to, you know, saying, looking at someone who is not open-minded that I would say probably they're not ready. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I teach personally, as well as to all of my participants, as well as to this podcast is in my mind, after all these years of studying, reflecting, all of it, to me, life is a game of awareness. Mm-hmm. The more awareness we have internally and externally, the more effective we can be to impact the external world the way that we want to, right? So when it comes down to it, all of it is awareness and then effectiveness, right? So thank you for sharing that story. I want to segue back to back when you were 14, 15, because your mom committed suicide at 14. You, have, you had Lyme disease at 15, right? One may say huge traumatic events. And a lot of people would see that as, wow, I've you know, experienced misfortune, bad luck, woe is me. You didn't let that stop you. Rather, nowadays is you see as a blessing. So tell us a little bit about that that journey going from, wow, this is shitty, right? <laughs> How do I turn it into a gift? It, you know, I, I I don't know uh, what exactly was the was the the catalyst for the. It was a rapid awareness, though. Um, when my mom died, it was a major shock, of course, but it was not. It was a shock. To the point where I didn't believe it for weeks. I would actually go to the grocery store and I'd see her back of her head, and then she'd turn around. And it was some other woman, right? Um, and I'd play all sorts of games. I even called my home phone uh, and and just to hope that she would answer. You know, like I was in total denial about it. Um, but at the same time, I knew it was true because we had been through this. So she had attempted a, a couple of other times, and so and, and in that way, it was kind of a relief, strangely. But but there was I had a lot of time to to contemplate. Uh, this and I remember that the anger that came up first was that it it was that it was not her life to give away. Um, and what was interesting about that was that, that I didn't believe it was her life to give away. That this is a what gift. What do you mean by that? This is a gift, right? This is this is not. I, I don't believe that. I believe that the, that we have a response. This is this is a gift. And and yes, I guess it is your life. You can do with it what you want. And and so if that's your choice. But I felt that it was so precious that it, that it was it was a gross misuse of this gift. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I and it was interesting because that was a shift in mindset for me because I had been so unhappy. Um, and I would say suicidal ideation. I wouldn't say I was suicidal, but there I had lots of thoughts. And I was listening to terrible music. I was a textbook example of garbage in, garbage out. Um, and and so I, I was. I, but the, but but I will say that you know that my the the, the psychedelics uh, spe- specifically the plant medicine you know I was I was experimenting a lot with psilocybin at the time I had a tremendous amount of insights into um, into the connectedness of everything mm-hmm. um, and also into the forgiveness. So, so you did it fourteen fifteen is during that time. Yeah, throughout throughout uh, high school, even or earlier, even uh, you know. Um, 
in, in a recreational in way or more of an intentional way? In a, you know what? It was it was intentional. I was always interested. I, I read a lot of you know the beatnik stuff, and and I and I, I was interested in sort of the in in the alternative thought uh, that that came from from that period. Um, so yes, there was I I think a degree of of escapism, of course, um, and it was obviously experimentation. But I started really seeing the gifts that come from that, the different insights. And as you say, awareness is, is, is what it's really all about. It's the ability to see from different perspectives, to teach, which teach you that the one that you have isn't it. It's not it. In fact, it's barely anything. It's, it's, a, it's, 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 a, it's an incredible illusion. And I will show you how it's an illusion because I can, I can change it quickly with this very simple molecule. And then you'll experience a very different reality. And you can't tell me that's not real. Right. So, so changing awareness, changing perspectives was something that, that, that I found to be really useful in, in right sizing myself. Um, and, and, and also, um, so I, but, but I was, I went from being, uh, extremely, uh, I mean, it was depression. There was no, I, I tend to not use those kinds of labels, but I was deeply depressed and really kind of wondering what, what, woe is me. I, I, there were times when I wouldn't get it, the Lyme disease and all this stuff. All right. Right, but right. really the gift of her death actually uh, made me a grateful person. Uh, I realized in examining her, mm. her process that she had, her perspective was that she, she had, she couldn't see past the tip of her nose. Mm. She had her hand in front of her face and she couldn't see that it was her own hand. Right. Mm. Blocking her. So she, she lost perspective on the grandeur and the majesty of the universe. Mm. She, 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 you know, I would sit there in, in the middle of the meadow um, and, and think about how, you know, we're sitting here on a rock spinning around in space and we get just close enough to the sun in the summer that we get hot or, and we don't burn into a crisp and then just far enough away in the winter that we get cold, but we don't turn into a ball of ice and delicate balance. is just so extraordinary. How could you ever want to, to truncate the timetable on this very limited time we have? Mm -hmm. um, and so it was really, I think her, her lack of appreciation for that, mm -hmm. that galvanized my sense of gratitude mm -hmm. more than anything else. Thank you for sharing that. Um, as you're speaking, there's a, a internet meme that comes to mind. I don't know if you've seen it. This is a little boy. The ground with the with a boot on his face, as, as if someone is stepping onto him, and then the next frame is well, the boot was his hand wearing a boot on his face. <laughs> talking about because I mean, um, Buddhist principles: life is suffering, uh, pain may be inevitable, but it is what we give it the story tell that makes the pain even worse that turn into suffering. Yeah. So. I, I think that that's, I think that's a misquote. I, I, I've often thought that, you know, that the idea that suffering, suffering is, 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 is part of uh, life. Pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that might be a translational issue. Pain is part of life. Mm -hmm. uh, suffering is truly optional and, mm -hmm. and, and suffering has to do with identifying that pain as you and, 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 yes. and you know, and, 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 you know, you, you, some of the stuff that I, that I do now as a, as a, as a, as a secret, as a, as a, as a, I hope more and more conscious adult is experience, put myself into situations where physically I'm uncomfortable, you know, the Wim Hof type stuff, you know, hot and cold contrast therapies. Um, and, 
And, you know, when you're doing it right, you are stepping back, you're sitting back observing when you're the observer of the pain and you're not being, there's a tremendous liberation that happens there, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that if you, if you start looking around at the world, you know, hormesis is one of the most amazing things in the world, right? Hormesis. So, you know, it, it, there's proof that pain, there's evidence, but this goes back to what I was saying before about if you're a seeker, if you're a seeker and you're willing to look at the world honestly, You'll see that what you're being, what what you have, what you think, what your body thinks, what your ego thinks is opposite game. It's a, it's a, it's everything is opposite day, right? Mm-hmm. Pain is your friend. Pleasure is your enemy. I've never learned any great lesson from pleasure. I've never learned. I've learned bad lessons. I've learned what not to do, mm-hmm. right? I've learned to get lazy. I've learned to take shortcuts. I've learned that I have that it's me that I'm doing this thing, mm-hmm. right? Uh, when things are going well, when things are not going well. That's where the goal is, right? And I'm not saying that you should sabotage your life, but I have a feeling that I've done that more than once or twice uh, subconsciously in order to facilitate some growth in my life. You know, um, if I wasn't, you know, the kid with the boot on my own head or throwing, putting obstacles in front of me, you know, I sometimes, like I said, think that I wrote the script of this movie because not only is it pretty, pretty dramatic, I like the outcome. You know, I like, I like, like the one. I love the story. I love, I, I love this story. Yeah. You know. So one thing is again, I'm, we're mixing analogies a little bit, but I love to look at our life as we're the screen, uh, the scriptwriter, the actor, the director, everything all in one. So if you don't like the way the story is going, there's probably some huge lessons there. But if you don't like the way it's going, you are the scriptwriter. Right. You're right. the director. You can totally rewrite it the way that you want to, whatever that may look like. And if you enjoy, quote unquote, enjoy the suffering, it's great. Continue to go down that path. But ultimately, I believe um, that that's, that's, you know, we're the master of our life. We're, we're the captain of our soul, right? Well, so you also have to make a decision if you want happiness or not, right? So the, the, the first step is, is, again, willingness. If you decide you want happiness, you're willing, it's like what Mickey Singer says in, or in uh, Untethered Soul. Mm-hmm. You know, the first decision is, are you committed to being happy. Are you committed to being happy? Because if you are, then you're going to have to make a decision as to whether or not you want to hold on to that thing that you're, that, that's making you miserable or let it go. So it's pretty binary when, when Michael Singer talks about it, right? But the, the process of getting there may not be so, so straightforward. So let me bring back to your story because we're digressed quite a bit. So you're started, okay, you identify a market opportunity. You have then identify, hey, this is part of my story overcoming asthma, creating a, a, a healthy home for others. And you're willing to go through the journey of whatever challenge that may come, starting a business, this and that. So for the entrepreneurs that's listening to this, they're going through in the middle of it right now. Do you have any framework, tactical things that they can start thinking about? Because it's not easy in that space being challenged. It's not fun. It's not pleasant. It's kind of like being an ice bat, actually. It's, it's, it's not too far from that, right? So, so what would you say to them such that they can either uh, refine their vision, refine their strategy, or refine their action? Uh, you know, it, it, I, it depends. If, if, if I'm talking to a purpose-driven entrepreneur, you know, that's, that's a different conversation rather than just an entrepreneur who's, who's sort of chasing the, you know, the, the people listening to this, chances are they want to bring more purpose and meaning in the thing that they do, not just a pure money driven venture, even though, yeah, it's, it's both. 
Um, you know, it, when you're running into obstacles, um, you know, you're always going to be questioning whether or not you're doing the right thing. And, you know, the, the biggest problem with entrepreneurship is that you're, you, it's a very solitary thing. It's a very lone, lonely thing. And you generally speaking, if you're asking for advice, you're asking for advice from people who have a conflict of interest in the situation. So if it's your wife or girlfriend or, or parent or investor, they generally speaking are much more risk averse than, than, than the entrepreneur who's, you know, and they, and they want the best for you, but they're scared too. They're more scared. Um, and so it's really, it's a really lonely place if you want, if you keep all that inside. So, so, so I think the first thing, uh, to do is surround yourself with, with people. I think, I think that's a really important thing is to have, even, or even if it's just virtually like this, you have to have, um, you have to have some people that you can connect with to, to, to speak out loud about this thing. But the internal framework for me is, um, is that I, in, um, I think I just always continually reminded myself that the, that the opportunity here is greater than any obstacle I have to overcome in order to achieve it. And so that's a, that's a repetitive um, uh, thought or feeling. And it's a, it's, it's, it, and, I, and I'm in a business where fortunately, you know, there is a degree of, uh, you know, some immediate gratification. We were fortunate enough to have some early success. So we knew that we got validation in it. And so I knew it was a matter of iterations and maybe, you know, different approaches. So it wasn't like I was going out there into some completely virgin space and trying to make up, you know, some sort of solution to, that might have, that might have a problem to solve. Right. Mm-hmm. I think, you, I think the key for me as a as an entrepreneur that's purpose driven is that you first have to find a real problem and you have to really solve it and you do it with one person and you find, so find a prop, find a need and fill it, find, fill that need and then fund it. And then, and then you turn around and then you try to, to scale it as much as you can and increase your, uh, your impact without reducing the quality of what you're trying to do. So, but I think that really, if you're, if you're bumping up against stuff, you're not able to validate what you do, you might be in the wrong place. Mm. Uh, and so you need to be able to be honest with yourself that if you're either not able to do it emotionally, sometimes you have to be honest that you maybe have to do it, have, have it as a side gig. You know, you have to maybe build up to this thing. This is, a, this is, this is like, you know, being an entrepreneur is a lot like being an athlete. You know, you can't expect to go be a triathlete tomorrow. You start with, you know, go out and, and run around the block. You know, you, you have to build endurance for this stuff. Anybody who just jumps into it, it's a skill that you get better and better at because you start to learn how to deal with that doubting voice. You start to learn to deal with uh, external criticism. You start to learn your, your skin gets thicker in certain areas, but maybe your sensitivity to the right advice or the right voices becomes much more acute. And so it's a process, but it's only a process. It's, it's, it's custom for you. And, and it's only for you. And if you choose to do it, it's only, you have to do it with the, with the knowledge of the risks involved. You're likely going to blow up relationships. You're likely going to blow yourself up. You're likely going to run out of money. You're likely going to be scared existentially. You're likely not going to be able to live a, a comfy life and a life of growth. Um, and, and so if you can go into it eyes wide open, uh, and if you also have to be doing something that the money is not the driving force, because when you encounter real obstacles, the money is not going to get you there. It's so the actually on that very note, then I, I want to say this. Well, some people may say, right? Let me be the devil's advocate for a moment. You made a bunch of money before. You had money, so of course you can say that. No, I actually lost most of my money when the dot com bubble burst. So I, I was, I, I had made a lot of money. I made millions and millions of dollars in my twenties, uh, and I spent it like a drunken sailor, and I had a great time, um, and I don't regret a single minute of it. You know, I, I missed out on a lot of opportunities because I was too busy partying, too busy being a dumb, you know, young. 20. I owned my own brokerage from when I was twenty three years old. 
you know, so I was having a lot of fun. But when the dot-com bubble burst, I think I gave away that money uh, for, for other reasons, too. I think that subconsciously it was like, boom, start from scratch, almost like dirty money. You know, there was something there that felt like it was time to purge and then and then be reborn in many ways. Um, so I, I came into this scrappy. I mean, I started the company that uh, that's now 1-800-GOT-MOLD with a borrowed credit card. You know, I bought a van on eBay. I bought a used dog, uh, which I can tell you more about, but, uh, and, a, and, a, and a used van on eBay and, uh, and, and created 1-800-GOT-MOLD. So, um, and, and it was fear. And I also ratcheted down my lifestyle so that I could afford, if I needed to flip burgers to pay the rent, I could do it. I had a bicycle instead of a car for the, for the beginning, except for the, the van. My work van was my car for a number of years. Um, so not exactly the sexiest thing to, you know, take, mm-hmm. take a data. On. But anyway, the point is I did not set myself up for first. I did not set myself up for an easy path. I set myself up for a path where if I came into obstacles, if I came against, came up against obstacles, like I knew I would, I would be able to endure them. So let me ask you this because people are listening to this very much. Right? This is an extension of who I am. One of my core beliefs is Kaizen everlasting leaning to my edge, leaning, leaning to my discomfort for the sake of challenges, right? So, but sometimes I do feel like I'm maybe too addicted to that challenge. You know what I mean? So I had to actually make an effort to be in the present, being in the now, being grateful, and actually not to always seek the extreme hardship. Does that make sense? It's a yin and a yang, right? So, so in so I'm trained, I've trained myself over the years to lean into discomfort. And I also, these days, I had to train myself actually to go back the yin yin, right? To actually like, not to always pursue the 1%, you know, go for the, the home run kind of a thing. Does that make sense? So I'm curious to know, from your point of view, how do you find, how do you, my friend, find that equilibrium? So you don't, you're not addicted to the hardship. You're not addicted to... You know, throwing everything, burn the ship every time you have an idea. You know what I mean? I'm not sure that I have overcome that, to be honest, um, because I tend to, I mean, you know, I don't want to say fear is a great motivator, but I mean, you know, I do put myself in uncomfortable situations to, to, uh, to force change at times. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll notice myself doing things that might be perceived as almost like the, the pre- preamble to self-sabotage. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, and so identifying that early is, is, is probably the, 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 uh, an indication of some growing maturity, but you know, the, the, uh, I, I, you know, the, the, the thing is, is that if you identify as like a type a motivated person, uh, and, and it's about co- accomplishment, if you're, if you're looking at this as a competitive thing and you, and, and there's this idea of accomplishment, a lot of this is, is doing in the not doing, right. It's almost like meditation. It's the most important thing you can do in not doing. Right. Um, and so being able to ast- understand that, that, uh, this is just a competition with yourself, uh, mm-hmm. and that, that, that really has more to do with sharpening your ax, you know, the, the whole idea of taking your time. Um, and, and that the, this aspirational aspect is the question is who are you doing this for? Mm. What are you doing this for? Yep. And if you're doing this for headlines, if you're doing this for ego, if you're doing this because to fill a void in yourself, and we all are, right? I mean, we're all in a sense of perpetual discomfort and we're doing all sorts of things in order to, to, to solve, to, to fix that, right? I mean, I, that's the human condition. If I've learned one thing from having a, 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 an infant is that the day he was born, I noticed we had to rock him constantly, right? 
and they say you have to sue the baby, right? And I'm thinking that guy doesn't have any bills to pay. He doesn't have a you know, worry in the world. Why does he have to be soothed, right? Because we come into this this shell, this 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 vehicle, uh, this learning device. We come into this thing in a state in a state of discomfort. It's our human condition, and mm. so we're constantly moving away from comfort or towards pleasure, which is just another form of moving away from discomfort. And, and, and so, but when you start to realize that there's a payoff by pursuing discomfort as a, as a way of increasing your quality of life, or, and then you become competitive about that. And then you find if any time you do, any time of behavior, this is my, because I also have a, a history of addiction. Anytime I'm doing something that is causing me problems, and I know it's causing me problems, and I continue to do it anyway, even if it is in pursuit of greatness, it's not a healthy behavior. And so therefore, so if I'm doing this discomfort thing to the point where it's causing other issues, then it's an addictive behavior and therefore it's not, it's counterproductive. And then I need to reel it back in. Does that make sense? It totally does. And I really appreciate that. And, and what I want to underline is there's a couple of things that you said, you drop a few gems just in that last few minutes. I want to underline this. That is why are you doing this and what are you doing this for? If you can answer that question in a very rational, centered way, then you can have that awareness. Am I doing this for self-importance? Am I using this as a way to fix something, fill a void or whatever? And that, if you can answer that in a very honest way, that's where you can find your way back to equilibrium. Absolutely. Yep. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. So again, I wanted to respect your time. And so if you don't mind going to a little bit more tactical things of how you actually on a day-to-day level, find your center, find your equilibrium and morning ritual, evening ritual. If you can tell us a little bit about that and the internal awareness side and the external effectiveness side, that would be really appreciated. Yeah. So I, I tend to be a, I, I mentally am an all or nothing kind of person. And that has been a problem for me. So what I've learned is that I am a, I'm a best efforts kind of person. And I, and I, and I'm learning to forgive myself for, 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 for striving. And then, you know, so if I, if I want to meditate, I want to meditate every day and I'm going to do it twice a day. And I'm going to, and if I, if I don't meditate, then it's, then I'm not going to do it at all. I just, you know, I throw my hand. That's historically, it's all or nothing, right? It's binary. Um, and so over the, the, over the years, I've learned that, uh, you don't have to do everything that you intend to do every single day, but if you do most of it, then you're going to be starting to develop some habits. You're going to start, if you go to the gym every single day, you're never going to have time to heal and recover. Right. So you need to have time and contrast in all of these exercises. But for me, a morning routine is extremely important. And then for me, an evening routine is also extremely important. And again, I don't do these things, all of these things every single day. I do write down, I've got a journal every day. uh, And I, and I, and I have, um, I have my morning routine written down at the top. Um, and, and I've had forms made to have these things written and, and, and then I find that I'm glossing over it. So I write them down every morning. So in the morning I wake up and I hydrate, uh, I wake up generally with the sun. If I can wake up earlier, I do, uh, so between five and seven is my time, five, five and seven a.m. So I, whether I get up at five or not, the point is that's my time. And so I'll get up in the morning and I hydrate immediately between a liter and a liter and a half of, of filtered water with some mineral drops, maybe some lemon. Uh, and then I'll meditate, uh, for generally about 20 minutes. I sit and write in my journal. Uh, my journal is generally just a free form uh, kind of like mental dump. Um, I generally do something, some, some, something physical in order to wake up. And sometimes it, I follow my gut. I don't necessarily always do it in the same order. I try to meditate as much as I, as in the morning first thing. 
but then I do something physical. Generally, I do like 10 sun salutations, some floor stretching, things to just kind of integrate my body, my think, my, my thoughts. Um, and but really trying to stay stay focused on on just being present and aware and grateful. I, in my journal, oftentimes I'm really doing a gratitude dump, um, and 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 I focusing on that is extremely extremely important. And having time to have your own thoughts. I do not look at my phone until probably eight or nine a.m. Uh, I do use it as a timer, but I'm very, very strict about not going into any of the other apps. Um, I don't look watch any TV. Uh, I don't watch TV at all, really, except for some some CNBC. But uh, but in the morning, that that that's my morning. And then around around eight thirty or nine, I'll begin looking at emails and and start starting to map out my day. But also on that same in my journal where I've got the morning routine written, I've got three primary tasks. Um, so I, I've I've distilled from the night before. Um, what my three primary tasks are, and they're always the hardest thing first, right? So the biggest thing, whatever I'm especially avoiding, I will write down as the number one thing. And if you do that, it's like the big rocks thing. If Stephen Covey, there's, if anybody wants to Google Stephen, Rock, Stephen Covey, big rocks, it's a great piece. And it talks about prioritizing, making your, your big stuff be your priority because little, little stuff always takes care of itself or you can delegate those things. And so, uh, and then below that, I'll have some personal items that I want to, that, I, that I'll need to take care of or open loops that weren't accomplished from the previous day. And then on the other side of the page, I have call notes. Uh, and so I'm, I'll just be writing whatever's going on throughout the day. So I keep kind of a, a log of what's happening, but at night uh, after I've, and, and throughout the day, I'm, I'm doing, I'm taking time to, I, I've, I've begun doing short five minute meditations throughout the day here and there as a reset, because I, what I've noticed is in my 20 minute meditations, I get most of my value out of the first three or five minutes. Is it TM that you do? I do. I do. Actually, you know, I've, I did TM for a long time. I'm now really just, uh, just a centered breathing. Um, and so the, I've kind of dropped the mantra. Um, but I, I've actually, the mantra I should say, uh, has in the last six months or so, it's actually gone to whenever I start to notice my mind wandering, I go to let go, uh, let in the inhalation to go on the exhalation that has become, that really resonates with me. Mm. Um, I've been doing a lot, a lot of, uh, reading, uh, Michael, Michael Singer on tethered soul, which I know you did a book club piece for, which I loved, uh, is now one of my favorite books. It's in my success library. Um, letting go also by Dr. David Hawkins, uh, the, the letting go thing has been super powerful because I'm starting to realize the tensions, mental and physical that I'm able to, to, to drop in a quick three to five minute being centered. Um, and so that's been the most important thing, stopping to take the time to sharpen your ax. And then at night, uh, I'll decompress. I'll try to keep the phone away for, you know, an hour to two hours or any screens hour to two hours for bedtime, uh, hydrate properly. I try not to eat anything before, like three, more than three hours uh, or less than three hours uh, before bedtime if I can. Um, and then I write down my, my intentions for the, for the, for the next day on that same journal that I talked about in terms of the, my major tasks. Oh, I also have major themes. So at the top of, so it's major themes, morning routine. I don't have it in front of me, uh, primary tasks, and then my personal items. And so the major themes might be something that I'm wrestling with, right? So that might be, I'm not having coffee after 2 p.m. And I'll write that down. So then that's just a touchstone for me to remember the thing, the new behavior that I'm trying to focus on throughout my day. So that's what's in front of me as a constant reminder, because I believe that we are, we are subject to influence. And so I want the influence to be from, from me instead of what's going on at, you know, I, I want to be an active participant in the creation of my own influence, right? If that makes sense. I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, two more questions. One is, what kind of books are in your success bookshelf? Like what, what, what's the most impactful books for conscious entrepreneurs 
building a business to bring more purpose and meaning in their life, what books would you recommend them to be reading? You know, I have to tell you that I'm really impressed with uh, with uh, everything that Ray Dalio does. That Principles is incredible. He's got a children's book that I just got to. It's a coffee table book. I would actually recommend that anybody who wants to look at Principles uh, that has limited bandwidth like most of us do, start with the children's book, honestly. It sounds crazy, but he lays it out in such a beautiful way. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, of Michael Singer. I believe that that his approach to mindfulness and uh, to dealing with the 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 create the the the, the things that go on, those voices in our head, being able to help people understand that that doesn't make them crazy. It makes them human uh, and, and get rid of a lot of the judgment associated with that is incredibly liberating. And I think part of being an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur is learning how to be a successful human and being a successful human is starting to see the world truthfully and honestly and lovingly. And I think he does a really beautiful job of, 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 uh, of sharing that. The other one that I'm really a huge fan of, and I, and, and, and I just actually heard that Tim Ferriss was, was promoting it. Uh, in one of his recent podcasts, and he was saying it was one of the most important books he ever read. And it's and the one I just recently went back to it for 20 years, and that's Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Um, who, it, it, that is a life-changing book if there ever has been one. But then you can obviously go back to, you know, the Thinking Grow Riches and the Grow Richer Peace of Mind and all those those books. Those are foundational. They're, they're out, they, you, cannot go, you cannot go from, you can, I don't think you can exist in this, in the entrepreneurial sphere without exposing yourself to Napoleon Hill, because that's the bedrock upon which all of the other great thinkers in this space, Tony Robbins and all those other guys are built upon. Um, but, but I really do think that the, the, this is an inside job. Um, and, and the best thing you can do is just never stop reading because yeah. what you'll, the more you read, you know, you, you, you follow the influences of the people who are, who, who got, got you know, Tony Robbins, you track it all the way back. It all comes back down to the, the new thought, uh, practitioners back in the, back in the day, you know, Ernest Holmes and all of those, there's a very, co- all of these things have a common denominator. And so if you're a seeker, you'll find that, right. But I would I would say that you just go to the you go back to the basics and but Ray Dalio in terms of current current stuff right there is absolutely at the top of my list. Actually, I have a very tactical question I want to ask you. So whenever I talk to entrepreneurs, they have tons of ideas in their mind, mm. right? New shiny objects, new business to start, or some projects within their current business. Do you have a way to help them narrow it down to the most important thing? Yes, I do. And actually, that's a really good question because I just had, I just thought about this. Um, uh, I, I, I look at, uh, I, first of all, I have a new, I have a new business file. I, I use Evernote um, pretty religiously um, because it's just, you, if you ever, if getting things done by David Allen, fantastic guidebook for people who have a lot of ideas, a lot going on. And Evernote is my, is my dumping ground. Mm-hmm. And so uh, um the other day I was, uh, I was, I was thinking about how, uh, how do I filter out? You got all this, all these opportunities and what our most precious commodity is our attention, right? It really truly is wherever we dedicate our attention is going to be, that's, that's something that we have a very limited amount of. And if we dedicate it for something meaningful, then we're going to re- receive meaningful results potentially. And if you, if not, then, then, uh, then it's up to the, to the rest of the universe. So I start to say, well, how do I filter that out? And so I start looking at, I only get involved in businesses where there's some sort of like a triple bottom line where there's truly a benefit to everybody involved, right? I don't want to see any, anybody being disenfranchised in, in, in an effort to accomplish the goals of the business. Right. So, um, and, and so, you know, I want to see a, a, a true, you know, win-win situation. I believe the philosophy that I subscribe to is doing well by doing good. Uh, while, while, while having a great time doing it. So that's the first thing. 
the second filter, right? So now that that brings that that eliminates a lot of things, right? Uh, that then the, the next filter is wh- where can I add true value, authentic value here from my own personal experience in a unique way, right? So where for, where where in my life do I can, have I, have I got an actual way for me to look at this situation and truly add value in a unique, authentic way. Um, and, and so that narrows it dramatically, right? But if you're willing to go to a place where you see that there is pain in your life that you've been able to, or there's been something where you're uniquely qualified to add value, that's where I would start, right? And so for me, it's like, you know, suicide is a big deal, right? So, so, so I've, I've been a student of those kinds of thoughts, but addiction actually came out of that. And so I, I'm, I'm heavily involved in the addiction space um, because I had some, I had a, a nice wrestling match with alcohol for about 20 years. Um, and so I look at uh, food is also a big thing for me because, and I'll be doing some food businesses in the future along the lines of, you know, in the, in the low glycemic space, because I wasn't able to eat sugar-based foods for, uh, for a number of years because of the antibiotics from Lyme disease from wiping out the flora and obviously the mold thing, right? So everything that I'm, that I'm interested in, uh, for me, the way it works for me is it has to be, it has to fill, it has to check all those boxes and it has to come from a place of true authenticity. Cause otherwise, you know, you, you can hire anybody for this or you can go, you know, if does that make sense? I'm not going to do widgets for the sake of doing widgets, if that makes uh, any sense. And I think that that's the mining. You have to be able to look at your life and see where, where you've got the bumps and bruises. We talked about it the, a little bit the other day, but the idea of, uh, you know, the Japanese have this, this, this method of um, repairing broken uh, ceramics and bro- broken pottery, where they, instead of trying to repair it, like we would in the, in the West, where we try to fix all the cracks so they would be imperceptible, rather they enhance them and they, they, they put gold and silver powder on those cracks and then put them on the shelf for display, which is where I think that we, we could have, a, a, we could learn a few things uh, from them on, because at the end of the day, it's your cracks. It's where you're broken. That the beauty is it's where you're broken. That makes you unique. And just like a bone that's broken is stronger in that place than it ever, than it is anywhere else. And the weld is a, a weld is stronger than it's, than it's native metal. Um, you know, the same thing goes for us. And so I'm a big fan of celebrating people's wounds um, uh, because it's, it's from those wounds that you have perspective and strength uh, and uniqueness. And that's worth celebrating. Mm. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I mean, we cover a lot of grounds in this uh, podcast in a short amount of time. You did not disappoint. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Um, is there any last thing, if there's one thing that they would do that you, based on your recommendation, what's that one thing that they should be doing out of everything that we talked about? It's going to be the most annoying thing because everyone says it, meditate. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, find, find a way to, to cultivate mindfulness um, as a, and, and real meditate, you, you can do your headspace and all that stuff. That's a, that's a, that's the way, that's the gateway to the real meditation, but get comfortable with silence, get comfortable with the discomfort. And meditation is the way for you to start to separate the voices in your head. Meditation is the way for you to start to disconnect from this idea that my thoughts are me. And more importantly, meditation starts to get you to the point where you can see impulses come and you don't grab them. You can see things come along your way and not, not be moved by them. And that's what an entrepreneur needs to be able to Go back to your question about distractions and how you do you by meditating while you start to realize or meditating consistently, you start to realize that not every shiny object needs to be responded to. And that's the same. It's the same thing when entrepreneurs have all these ideas coming. You keep a file for that stuff. 
And if it doesn't meet any any of those those things that I mentioned, then maybe it isn't for you. If you're a purpose driven entrepreneur, discard the the shiny stuff. If your buddy wants to get involved in something that, that that's maybe a little bit off kilter, it may be fun and exciting, but maybe it's pushing the wrong button inside. Um, so, but meditation will give you the freedom, that space between that I seek. The space between. There's a quote on my wall. I'll leave you with this. That says, in between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space lies your power, freedom, and choice. And that, to me, is the most powerful thing. I have that on my wall, and I look at that every single day. So cultivating that space between the thought and the impulse, the, the thought and the words, the thought and the action. And the, the, the fastest way to do that is through uh, a mindful, through, through conscious attention to uh, being present through meditation. I so appreciate you, my friend. Um, Likewise. So many things I can follow up and we can go even deeper. Hopefully we can do another part two and Let's just do on these type of things. But again, I want to respect your time with your family. So we'll just wrap here. Thank you, Jason, for sharing your wisdom, sharing your tactics, sharing your framework, sharing your story. So inspiring. I look forward to getting to know you a little bit more in the Thank future. You. Absolutely. Next, next time I'm out in LA, I'll definitely ping you. And obviously next time you're in the Big Apple, you do the same. Hey, listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast and all the nuggets of wisdoms, go to bit.ly forward slash Noble Warrior Review and leave us a five-star review and tell us what you're getting out of this podcast. This will really help us attract other people like you and share these nuggets of wisdoms to others just like you. Okay, do that right now, bit.ly forward slash Noble Warrior Review. Thanks a lot 